Law? I think I decided to preface Sunday's show. I did three minutes on the evening news. You'll, you'll want to see it. Where are you going? You've been banished. In lieu of being fired. I took off on Tish. I took off on corporate. They'll know they're not uh, going to see everything on Sunday night. I don't know. How does that get Wygan on the air? Do me a favor, will you? Spare me. For God's sake, get in the real world. What do you think? I'm going to resign in protest to force it on the air? The answer is no. I don't plan to spend the end of my days wandering in the wilderness of national public radio. That decision I've already made. Hi, this is And the Oscar Doesn't Go To. I'm Sam Meltzer, and on this podcast, a guest and myself will be discussing the films that received Best Picture nominations, yet not only failed to win that award, but didn't take home any trophies on Oscar night. Today, I'm going to be joined by Gabe Guarin, who is the host of the Alternate Oscars podcast, and is not a fan of Jack Nicholson in As Good As It Gets. So, welcome. Um, Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you mentioned my uh, disdain for Jack Nicholson's performance in As Good as It Gets. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So today we're um, going to be... What happened? Oh, um, nothing. Today we're going to be discussing The Insider, which was released in 1999 and is directed by Michael Mann, which got seven nominations, so... What about this film struck out to you and compelled you to choose it from all the films on the list? Oh, well, um, first off, it's directed by Michael Mann, someone whose filmography I've never seen. Like, I know he's directed movies like Heat and Thief and The Last of the Weekends, which are known as modern day classics. At least Heat is. And... The Insider was one of those films that interested interested me because of the subject matter and the idea of what he would bring to that film. And I just want to get more into his filmography and I thought this might be a good place to start. Yeah, I've, I this is also the first film that I watched from Michael Mann. I've never been particularly interested in him as a director. His films don't seem to be of my vein, I, I, his style of filmmaking and the genre isn't ten doesn't tend to be what I'm into. But I did, as we'll discuss later, I did really like this film. And ironically, I had seen every Best Picture nominee of the past 25 years except for this one. So I'm glad you chose it because for some reason I had never seen it. I just never was in the mood, or it's not that I didn't want to. It's just I never found the time. So this. Mark that off, and now I can say I've seen all the Best Picture nominees of the past 25 years, so that's that's nice. That's cool to know. Um, it also gave me a good excuse to revisit American Beauty and The Green Mile, both of which I had seen before, as well as The Sixth Sense, which I had also seen before. And then, unfortunately, I also had to see um, that fifth Best Picture nominee, which we'll get to. I, don't even, I can't even say the name. Yeah. Yeah, so basically the way the film starts out is Al Pacino's character Lowell Bergman is I believe in Lebanon. I'm not totally sure of the country. It doesn't at first state it. I'm not familiar with flags, but I think it was Lebanon unless I'm incorrect about that. And he convinces Sheikh 
Badlala, I, I cannot pronounce these names, to perform in an interview with Mike Wallace, who's played by Christopher Plummer, who's one of the main interviewers and people who works for 60 Minutes, which, as you know, was a very popular program. And Sheikh is the creator of Hezbollah, which is this organization sounding politics and military situations that came around after the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in the early 80s. So that's sort of the way Al Pacino's character gets introduced. And then with Russell Crowe, his name's Jeffrey Wigand. He gets this brief set up with the home life and he has a wife and a daughter and his daughter was playing with a toy and breathes in the dust and starts hyperventilating and has this asthma attack. And then Wigand, as a father, clearly helps her and you get to see how he's a good father figure and his strength and ability to be a father and then reveals that to his wife that he got fired from his job and his job was working for the tobacco, tobacco company, which he was an executive at, and they had a lot of top secret information that he's not allowed to share. And if he does, he'll be breaking the, what's it called? Service, I don't know, I don't know what it's called, se se severance package. And he doesn't want to lose that. So what intrigued you about the setup? What did you like or dislike about the way these characters were introduced? Well, um, one thing that struck me was how familiar the setup was Wigand was, or I know I've seen this sort of semi-absent father who is wrapped up in his work and is unable to attend to his family before, and yet this felt less artificial than some other movies had tried to deal with that subplot. This feels very humanistic in how it treats Wiggins and I like how I liked what Wiggins was saying to his daughter as he was treating her asthma attack and I really liked Russell Crowe's performance because it wasn't just the obvious physical transformation. He went beyond that and showed a level of introspection that made you realize that Quigand is a character worth paying attention to. And he really sells uh, Jeffrey Wigand as the person who would be daring enough to be a whistleblower in uh, in a business as dangerous as tobacco factories. Yeah, I agree with you there. I like the way they set up his character and showcasing the humanity. And as you stated, it, it doesn't feel as formulaic, even though it is similar to other fatherly setups in movies. It's more brief and natural and the dialogue isn't, it isn't artificial, it isn't overstated it's actually fairly understated, which is why I appreciate it. And Russell Crowe's performance, I don't love him personally, but this is probably his best work. I didn't like his performance very much in Gladiator. So coming off of that, I was underwhelmed. And in American Gangster, his accent slips a lot. And here, I really didn't notice his accent slipping. I thought he was convincing with the American accent. So yeah, I, I really liked his performance and again, the tobacco and he, he we'll get into this later but the moral dilemma of the movie is 
has to do a lot with how he handles his work at the tobacco company and you know whether debating between whether he should help other people and sacrifice himself or continue living on knowing all this dangerous information so even though you don't know this at the time looking back on it after finishing the movie you do realize that he embodies this character and all of his emotions much more much more human than you'd expect uh definitely and what i also liked about this movie is that it didn't feel unevenly paced the way a lot of movies of its length tend to feel like even with the opening with bergman's section of the opening or he's in Lebanon or whatever country he's in and he has to negotiate with the sheik and figure out this information about the whistleblower and I liked Al Pacino because he was very subtle and natural in this movie which is kind of a rarity for his late period career work. Yeah, I like, I agree with you. I think the way that he performs, I think he's also really good at yelling. I like the way he yells, particularly in the scene where he's arguing the office and debating whether they should publish the interview or not. And as you said, 100% on the pacing. I was very concerned with the two hour, 40 minute runtime before I went in. I thought it would be uneven and I'd be bored a lot, but this is a dense movie. I mean, the way it's quick and sharp with its dialogue and each scene after the other feels very consistent. I was impressed with the way man handled it all and how he was able to ensure that the two and a half hour runtime was justified because I haven't seen many films of this length that not only I like, but I feel the length is properly utilized. Even if I do like a two and a half hour movie, there are some examples where, you know, you're looking to the side and you're checking your phone for the time, even if you do like it a lot. But here, even though I took a few breaks because there is a lot to unpack, it's not uneven and it's never boring. Um, certainly not. And What makes this movie work, especially, is the way Michael Mann utilizes his style. It almost feels like a docudrama, and I would even compare it in some aspects to a movie like Mediumful, which is one of the most famous uses of the cinema verite style. I don't know if I'm not if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but. This movie has a similar grounded feel to it, like its compositions, uh, the techniques that the cinematographer Dante Spinotti uses, that scene on the beach, or he's trying to gain a signal for his phone, and he has to shout just to be heard on the other end, um, at Al Pacino's character, Lowell Berkman, that is. Yeah, I, I really like the way he directed it. I think he utilized the color blue a lot. Um, I live in New York and I didn't even recognize New York 
for a large portion of the film because the blue was so tinted and it really wasn't trying to be atmospheric. It was really trying to focus on the characters and the dialogue and the way the situation was handled and how chaotic it all was. I really did like the beach scene where they were sort of confessing to each other and getting into this real argument and how he was walking into the ocean to try and get a signal, even though that doesn't make sense because that would be the opposite direction from getting a sing signal and how he's screaming and it's just what he's saying is so important. And on the other end, Russell Crowe is alone and you know, like he grabbed the phone from all the people banging on his door. So it's this, he directs the film in a tense situational way rather than an atmospheric and slow way because with a film of this length and this tense and dramatic of a situation, you really can't utilize things like sound and cinematography. He isn't trying to make it pretty, he's trying to make it real. And I really like that approach. <clears throat> I did too. And what I really liked is that this is a good example of how to use realism correctly, how to employ it correctly. Because sometimes some movies try to adopt a gritty, realistic style that ends up making the movie look ugly and hard to look at because some of the shots are just so poorly composited. But here, you mentioned the use of blues. This has a very cool and methodical look to it that works for this film. And the way man directs scenes that could have been mundane, such as the usual office scenes in the CBS station, he always keeps the tension high and on point. Like, you always feel like there's something at risk or at stake. Yeah, that's why one of the better things about the way he directed it. He knows that the film is long and he knows that it can be complicated. So a lot of the situations, I wouldn't say are repeated, but the way that the order of the story goes and the real life events happened, people had to overstate things and understate things. And you just get to hear a lot of different perspectives on this. He wants you to know that, you know, he, again, he isn't being atmospheric. He wants you to be focused on the situation, which is always super dramatic and super intense. And it's not a story that can be handled lightly. So the harshness and the blue and sort of the dark look of it is a really good way at gatekeeping the story, but also not having it meander. Cause I don't think the story drags. I think it is quickly paced and is very intimate and electric with the way its characters move on screen and develop. It definitely is. Like it doesn't take that long to establish the characters. And I feel this isn't so much a traditional character development story as it is the characters learning different things about the case and changing their reactions based on the new information they reveal. And I feel I find that tends to be a common theme along um, amongst a lot of biopics that I've seen good and bad.
Yeah. Uh, a movie that this reminds me a lot of is 1976's All the President's Men. And not just because you have two men trying to solve a case. In the way this film works, and I think I actually prefer this one because here you have Al Pacino's character who's driving the story and is the basis of it all. But Russell Crowe, his character, I don't know if develops is the right word. I, I mean, he does develop definitely, but the reason why I liked this film a lot more than I thought I would is because it has emotion and you see how he interacts with his family and he has to make this decision, which is the whole moral dilemma, which was my favorite part of the story. So Wygan has to decide between sticking with his home life and working as a teacher and keeping his past occupation as the tobacco executive private. And that way he won't be able to inform all the people about this danger but at the same time will be keeping himself safe and he won't have any problems with the law or with the company. But on another hand, if he didn't keep his past life private and he decides to re reveal the information, so many people would get help and the deaths that circumvent tobacco would decrease the number of deaths and it would be a decision relating to the greater good or the people. But at the same time, I don't think that if he weren't to make this decision, it would be selfish because he has to protect himself and he's under a lot of stress. So I really like that element of the story and how his character is shown because you do get two perspectives. One person who's really trying to do his job and is focused on one thing and is driving the story, but the other one who's adding this level of emotional stability and emotional interest. And that's the, that's the best part of the movie for me. Yeah, I really like that element of the story, and the way you describe things, one scene that I particularly liked that stood out to me was when he was walking in a hallway, I don't specifically remember what it's called, and he has to have security guards around him the whole time, and you just get a sense of how discomforting that is for him, and... There's this sense that he just wants to live a normal life. He doesn't want to be involved in all this espionage and this corruption. And he doesn't want to be in the position that he's in. And yet he's in this position. And there's nothing he can do about it. Yeah, although, you know, he has a family and friends, his life prior to this event was very private. And he liked it that way. And I also like how you can see the wife and how she reacts to all of this because you know he unexpectedly flew her and she didn't know she was going to be in the interview and she reacted to that strongly and she didn't when the security guards came she was like I don't want my children around this this is unacceptable but at the same time you understand that Wygand doesn't want it either but he doesn't have control he's got himself stuck in a dilemma that he can't get himself out of so yeah, I really like the security guard scene and I really like the scene before the interview. They're very emotional elements that easily could have been skipped if he wanted to simply showcase the event, but he wants to showcase an aspect of relatability and personal admiration. And that's what he does so well with, with the writing and the directing. That's certainly um, a good point. And on that note, I do think that some of the real-life footage that he uses is very well utilized. I like the interview with Wigan's wife. It felt like a very humanizing moment for her, 
within the context of the movie. And even though I feel like Diane Renor is a bit underutilized, I think she makes good use with what she has for that character. And she makes you feel like she gives you a sense of what it's like to be in this situation without having once considered or asked or like like most people in this movie she doesn't want to be in this situation yet she has to go along with it and eventually she decides she has to break out of all this she has to cut off Jeffrey and take the kids for her own safety I completely agree with you I do agree that I think her character could have maybe used 10 more minutes of screen time to showcase a bit more emotional development. But at the same time, I do like what we are given specifically in those two scenes. And in the first scene, how she's introduced, she clearly loves her husband and doesn't want anything bad to happen to him. But at the same time, won't accept this behavior and situation if her children, who she loves very dearly, are going to get involved. Yeah, and um, the wife leaving the husband and taking the children is another element that you that you could consider formulaic. But again, this movie handles it more realistically than other movies that have used these cliches. And this must have been what happened in real life, so I don't begrudge that mov- the movie using those cliches. It's also more laid back and isn't as prevalent in the film than in those. It, it, it doesn't focus on that. That isn't the drive of the story. So yeah, I appreciated that. And it also is self-aware of it and isn't thinking it's doing something grand and emotionally powerful, even though it, it is. It, it's aware of what it's doing and how it's not the very first time it's been done before. Yeah, definitely, and I guess another element of the movie that I really liked was the people working at CBS, and basically the way Mike Wallace operates stuff like 60 Minutes, and Mike Wallace is just brought to life through a brilliant performance by Christopher Plummer who I think just commands every scene he's in. And there's just one scene that I think I want to wait on to discuss, but he's excellent in that scene. And again, he doesn't just go for easy mannerisms. He feels like the real-life person. And I always got the sense that this man just wants to get his show publicity, no matter what that means. But he's not a complete monster, even though he makes several questionable decisions. And again, a great performance from Christopher Plummer. Yeah, I really liked his performance. He was commanding, but not in a 
flashy or overdone way. In the very first scene you see with him, Christopher Palmer as Mike Wallace, he's about to film the interview in Lebanon and there's difficult, they have difficulties with certain restrictions in terms of where to sit and where to film. And there's so many different languages being used and that creates chaos, but he is on top of it. And he says, no, I will not let this slide. This is bullshit. And, you know, he really wants to go forward with this job. So the way that Plummer handles this character is a great embodiment. Plummer is one of the great character actors. He rarely gets a big leading role, but in fact, that, that makes it better because he's able to sink into the teeth of these characters and have them feel really believable. And he demands your attention and is thoroughly enjoyable and also provides a great amount of depth so I really like what he brought to the role. Um, I did too, quite a bit. And I think this movie does a good job with all of its supporting characters. They're not the focus of the story, but they add another dimension to the plots. And the actors who played him, like Lindsay Krauss, like, it was just always such a, a certain joy just watching her square off with Al Pacino. And then there's Phil Baker Hall, who's just amazing and everything I've seen him in, like Magnolia. And there's Colin Bjorn, Gina Gershon, and Michael Gammon, and Rip Torn, and Cliff Curtis. But it's not just the actors. I think they have good characters to work with, no matter how small, and just having good actors in these parts gives this movie, like I said, another dimension to further immerse you into this scenario that's going on and give you a sense of what happened in real life. Yeah, the acting isn't subtle, nuanced, or gracious, but it shouldn't be. There, it's it's a film I describe the acting. It's very strong, both literally and you know in a mental sense. The the performances are all around strong. They're they're using their strength to command the screen and allow the writing to shine as brilliantly as it can. And going back to, you know, in the initial part, I, I really like how the plot starts to thicken after you know, Wygand and Bergman sort of meet and start talking to each other and Wygand reveals he's sort of a secretive person and isn't allowed to share this. And there's a whole incident where he almost gets caught. And then Bergman says that, Bergman sort of says, I wouldn't try to like take out on you. I wouldn't, uh, my job is to keep this secretive. So then they sort of form this alliance. And although Wygand has you know, he has very damaging information. He's worried to help him, of course, but the plot really thickens when he hears of this person invading his property and being on his backyard. He calls Bergman and they briefly speak. And then a second later, he receives this suspicious phone call where the caller says no, nothing. And during this time, he is working as a teacher. But the, the thing that really stood out to me was when, they, when he got the message on his computer that his wife saw first that said, we will kill you, shut the fuck up and the, the suspicious mail in the mailbox with the bullet. So this is when the plot really starts to thicken and diverges into his personal and emotional life. And that's when I really started to get hooked. 
Yeah, that scene of the death threats and that mail the bullets, that was really unsettling. And that was the point in the movie where it was like, okay, this shit's getting real. And it's a great case of how to build the suspense and mystery and tension when you're dealing with a true crime story in a movie. It certainly adds to the thriller elements of the film. I don't think it's a thriller, but this whole sequence of events is both unsettling and dramatic and handled very properly. It, It doesn't all happen at once. It sort of happens over the course of about 20 minutes of the story. While you do see him working as a teacher, this very respectable human job, and you know, the plot diverges after that into another very intense and dramatic moment with this music playing loudly in the background where Wygand is being interviewed finally is revealing the tobacco story on 60 Minutes and all this super top secret stuff. He's revealing all this information in a dramatic way and the way that you see the camera crew and how Bergman is reacting to the drama sort of thickens the plot even more because you don't know where Wygand is going at this point. You don't know what's going to happen to him. You do know that this information is, he's not allowed or told not allowed to reveal it, but you don't know exactly the direction. And I was scared for him. I, I felt, because I felt emotionally connected to his character and I recognized the layers that the writing brought to him beforehand, I was worried for him and I felt for him because, you know, obviously he wants to warn people and he wants to send out what the danger is, but at the same time, he needs to protect himself. And as an audience member, I I cared for him. So this was a very ambiguous and well-written part of the film. Definitely. And like with a lot of really good fact-based, almost thriller-like movies, you do feel legitimately angry about what the big corporations are doing. And with the BMW tobacco company in this film. The more you learn about what Wigan was fired for, why he was fired in the first place, it does, it did leave me feeling angry knowing that this happened in real life, similar to something like Silkwood, which is another great movie based on real-life events surrounding a corporation's corruption. And, again, just like with that movie, learning about the real-life events through this movie just left me feeling angry. Yeah, and I also, I completely agree with you. Adding on the way the story follows, you are in both Al Pacino and Russell Crowe's perspectives, but as you follow Russell Crowe, you don't really know what the tobacco company is doing. You don't know what it's done. It's all the people talk about, oh, it's been doing all these bad things, but you don't know about it until the interview scene happens. And then that's when you start to get angry because you realize all this time he can't share this and he can't warn people and you worry for people's mental health and the death rate that comes with tobacco. So I agree with you, some, some films they discuss social issues regarding corporations and the environment and death relating to this, but they don't do it in a way that 
angers you or makes you feel powerful, but because the writing is so sharp, it does, it, it's really affecting. Definitely. And that tension until the interview happens, it was almost just like, I recognized that I was entertained throughout the movie. And yet, I noticed that I also felt a sense of dread and recognizing that, hey, maybe I'm supposed to be feeling this way. And especially when you just keep learning more and more details about the company and all the circumstances surrounding Wygon. No, Wigand, however you pronounce it, and his family. And all of Bergman's interactions with Wigand, you see uh, Bergman continuously losing his call as the movie progresses. And you almost feel like um, as you kind of stress over the details and what you know and what you don't know. And that scene with the... Uh, where Wigan is given a gag order. That was just unsettling. Yeah, 100%. They have a very, I wouldn't say they, I, I wouldn't say that they have amazing, like chemistry. I don't know if chemistry is the right word, but it is interesting to see the way their relationship builds and how they need each other, even if they don't love each other. And they get into interactions and their connection is mostly based off of, is entirely based off the occupational situation. I also like how at, at this point in the story, you know, this is when the security comes to his house and he's starting to get separated from his family. The whole court scene happens and he's utterly terrified because his the kids and daughters are unaware of the situation and mixed up in these dangerous events. And, you know, this is also when the interview scene happens and then he testifies in court and then loses, con not only loses contact with Bergman, but also his wife and daughters who leave him immediately. So he's left on his own. And this is where, again, I was impressed with the emotional aspect and personal aspect of Wygand as a character. Yeah. And uh, on on adding to your points, I particularly liked getting to learn more and more about Wigand uh, as a character as the movie progresses. The worst thing that this movie could have done is just made Wigand a plot device, because the way he set up, a lesser filmmaker could have just made Wigand a plot device as the whistleblower. And yet man makes sure that he has equal say in this whole ordeal. And he's an equal participant instead of just being passive. And as you said about his uh, relationship with Bergman in the movie, it's not, I wouldn't say chemistry is the right word, but it is just compelling 
to see them having to work things out with each other in the uh, in trying to figure out uh, what Wigan was fired for and the extent of his whistleblowing. Yeah, 100%. As you said about the plot device, there were a few times where I felt like Bergman was kind of used as a plot device, but again, this is Wigan's story. I feel like Bergman is more of the investigator and isn't and in i mean in real life it it is a good comparison i don't think it would have made sense to showcase his personal life more because this is wygan's real story and although they have basically the same amount of screen time i believe and their characters are equally important it wouldn't have made as much sense to emotionally communicate through al pacino's performance and character so although there isn't as much of an arc with him as there is with Wigand, it is interesting to see how he connects with him and how they interact. Um, definitely. And personally, I really liked like the ending resolution with Bergman and how he just resigns from CBS after concluding that 60 minutes is no longer credible after the amount of fuck-ups that Mike Wallace has done. And I think in that scene and others, Al Pacino shows how good he is at at a certain stern command of the room around him. And his surroundings. For sure. Touching on Mike Wallace, I don't know much about 60 Minutes. I don't, I've never watched it, but after this, I feel like I know everything about this and a lot of television companies. It isn't Network, the movie Network, in the sense that you get a backstory of each character and how they all force in the workspace and how they're all screaming all the time. No, but you do see chaos within the workplace and brief moments of terror and screw-ups and all the effort and pain and stress that goes behind popular programs and networks. So in the sense, I liked that Bergman retires. He, I don't know, not retires like from occupations entirely, but gives it up and says, it's the right thing to do on my behalf. I started it in the sense that I wanted to make a good program and we already had one, but I may have taken it too far and recognizes his personal flaws and the flaws with the television network. So it is a very good demonstration of personal decision and debating what is right for yourself and for others. Uh, Absolutely. And And just um, this brings me more to uh, this brings me back to like what's ha- what is happening in CBS and how Mike Waltz is handling things. And I really liked that particular scene where 
Mike Wallace. That scene where he's like, how about try Mr. Wallace? That scene is just... If Christopher Plummer was nominated for an Oscar, that would be his Oscar scene. And... With that scene, you just get a sense of what kind of a boss Mike Wallace is. And how he's willing to condescend to the people who work for him. Just to feel like he's not being taken down a size. And he's not some mustache-twirling villain either. He could have easily been that, but... He has somewhat of a conscience, despite doing a lot of questionable things. And to your point about 60 Minutes, uh, I guess the most I know about it is seeing, some past, seeing clips of past interviews with some of our modern-day politicians like Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, and uh, Donald Trump. Um, but I don't know that much about 60 Minutes. This gave me more of an insight into what happened with them, what they are. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and, and again, not just 60 Minutes, but most television programs in that whole world of networking and the system. I think the way, again, like as you said, the way this story comes to a close towards the end where, you know, I don't know, you, you see how they have to reveal the story because of all the controversy surrounding it. And that's when you realize no matter what happens, Wygand is still in some sort of trouble and has caused a mess. And that honestly made me feel worried and it you know, didn't end on a very happy note. I liked the arc that he had and I liked how Bergman came to the citizen to leave. I liked that part and that made me feel good, but the way that they handled Wygan and, and the real life event, I mean, it, it's kind of disheartening because, again, he got him stuck in a huge moral dilemma and that's the focus of the film. And it's upsetting to see how the world of media treated him. Yeah, uh, the media definitely... I guess the media can be used for good things, but... At the same time, it can be used in so many different ways that you're kind of left stressed by the mere presence of the media. I think, in my opinion, it's no more apparent than in our current modern times. Or it can easily falsify a story. And you have so many different websites and what you see on television, and even the supposed good guys may not be fully telling the truth. And that's putting it lightly, and you brought up a good point about a lot of television, like, they have to appear on some level, like, calculated and calm and organized. But behind the scenes, they're just hectic and frantic and trying and barely managing to stay on point and keep a facade of composure. Like, I'm reminded of when I saw Magnolia, or 
behind the game show, there was a kid who needed to use the bathroom, and he had to hold it because he had just one minute left before the next game was to happen. And I definitely got similar vibes with this film and how it treats the media behind the scenes. Yeah, for sure. I like the comparison to that scene in Magnolia. It really goes to show the pressure and stress that goes behind television. As I like to say that all the successes are silent, but all the failures are public and exposed. And that's the problem with the media and how it's handled and the force and pressure that these people who are in the workspace feel due to the fact that they understand that at times everyone is watching them and they don't have a choice but to be as perfect and as calculated as they can. So it gives you a really good look on that whole world, even if it isn't the main focus of the film. And that's what's so great about the writing because it's able to focus on all these topics and issues, but that's not the main drive of the story and you still take away so much from it. Uh, definitely. And another thing with the media is how is its tendency to give equal footing to obviously dangerous voices. Like, I'm not sure if I want to get into specific detail, but I was definitely reminded of that media tendency when it came to this film. And how it raises a bunch of false equivalences a lot of the time which can prove genuinely dangerous, especially when they're bringing genuinely dangerous, hateful people onto their, uh, onto their channels and, that, and networks. For sure. It's a great showcase of the media and the, both the appeal and drama that happens behind there. And it does so in a non-tedious fashion it's easy to pick up on the themes, even if you miss a few interactions throughout the film regarding this, you aren't completely confused as to where you are. It, it, again, it's not tedious. It's not trying to confuse you. It's not trying to ensure that you rewatch it a bunch of times just so you understand it. it. It's trying to appeal to you and have you easily understand the message and, and what these workspaces are doing without stating it, without showing it entirely because there's no point in this film regarding the moral dilemma with Wygand regarding the whole work situation with Bergman or the television drama, the behind the scenes television drama that is preachy or trying to discuss a social message. Man is trying to showcase conversations and the events and the here's how it happened situation. But one, this is a film that I would argue more so develops and constantly thickens because you're in these characters' headspaces. It does so more that than it reveals itself. It does still reveal itself and give us backstories, but that's more rare addition with in, in addition to its story and intensity. But yeah, it, it does all these themes and all these messages, but isn't trying to get you to grasp onto those so easily. The characters aren't blatantly stating how they're feeling or what they're trying to get out of the situation. Yeah, definitely. And I think another great asset to this film is its editing, which really enhances the docudrama style that this movie has. 
and I noticed a lot of split cuts and a very in a very strong intensity to the pacing and just other techniques that you would associate with really good editing in this uh, vein. The editing is seamless. Yes, it's quick and allows that two hour, 40 minute runtime to feel much faster than it actually is and keep the entertainment value very strong and consistent. So yeah, I agree with you in the way that the film presents its technicalities and how each cut feels so necessary and it isn't overdoing it with the editing. It is, and there aren't many long takes to try to get the film to feel more natural and atmospheric because again, it's snappy and it's immersive in the way that they want you to be, a, they want you to feel like you're the main character, like you're Al Pacino or Russell Crowe. And the film really helps, the editing of the film really helps with that. Definitely. There, um, with this movie's pacing, it never really, it never outstays its welcome, and uh, this movie was edited by three different editors, and I noticed just looking at his credits, a man does tend to work with a big team of editors with each of his movies. And I haven't seen the full movie, but I do know the famous shootout scene from Heat. And that is just a masterclass in editing. The way he's able to utilize the rapid fire technique with rapid fire cutting, but it doesn't feel choppy. It doesn't just feel like a team of monkeys just messing around. Like you can actually tell what's going on. And the quick cutting actually feels necessary. And I can see similar techniques when it comes to this movie. And others, a lot of obvious cutting choices, but it actually works stylistically. And like I said, it adds to an almost documentary type feel even though it's not a documentary it certainly feels like it has elements of that sort of filmmaking style yeah because it's so realistic and it's so grounded and it's non-fictional storytelling so yes i agree with you I, I haven't seen much of heat i've seen the you got a great ass line from al pacino and some of the moments of the shootout but otherwise yeah. oh, great ass yeah <laughs> His delivery is spot on. And yeah, it, it makes sense that he used multiple editors. He really wants it to feel calculated and quick and have the pacing have a great effect on the editing or vice versa. The editing has a great effect on the pacing. So I appreciate his decision, yeah. the editors. They are William Goldenberg, Paul Rubel, and David Rosenblum. Just shout out to them for doing such an amazing job. Oh, yeah. Specifically with. Yeah the scene regard in the office where Bergman is telling them not to publish the episode, the interview, and they're all fighting against him. That, that scene for me was the best edited. Yeah. And, um, well, um, not, not a knock on them, but only Goldenberg and Paul Rebell did work on a lot of Michael Bay Transformers movies. And I think those are good examples of 
how to have a big team of vendors and go horribly wrong or in, in Revenge of the Fallen. It's just things happening and you don't know what's going on. And in those movies, there's a disappointing amount of close-ups so that you can't tell which robots are which. And just a quick cutting just gives you a headache at a certain point. And sorry for that tangent. Yeah, yeah. as you said, like having multiple editors, it can either feel brilliantly calculated or overly calculated. Two movies that come to mind, obviously the infamous Bohemian Rhapsody and how nobody likes the ending of it with the Oscar win. But another example that I've also brought up is Moulin Rouge because you see one person and then do something and it cuts to so many different people's reactions within a matter of two seconds. So those are two films that are overly edited. I don't think they have more than one editor, but they are overly calculated and way too overdone when it comes to the editing. But here, there is a lot of editing in The Insider, but it never feels like it's overdoing itself and it always feels like it's working in favor of the characters, the story and the pacing. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I just, I just really like this movie, and I tend to really like these sort of espionage, legal thriller types of movies. I'm also reminded of something like Michael Clayton, uh, which really uses a lot of the same techniques and sets a ton of actors at the height of their powers and Tony Gilroy as writer director really understands how to mine great tension and I wonder if he ever took any notes from Michael Mann when making that movie it's surprising that I, I initially rated this three and a half, but I recently bumped it up to four stars because the more I thought about it, I liked it so much. And I love that you brought up Michael Clayton because legal thrillers are a genre of movie that I never expect to like. But Michael Clayton is one of my favorites. I absolutely love that film. I think it is incredibly snappy, well-directed and well-written. And George Clooney is amazing. And you know me, Tilda Swinton gives one of my all-time favorite performances. So that film, I love that you brought it up because it has the same tone as this. Obviously that's shorter and is more of a fictional, I believe it's a fictional story. I could be wrong on that. But this is entirely real and much more dramatic and there's a lot more meat to it. But I would say I personally prefer Michael Clayton just because it's not that big a difference, but I prefer Michael Clayton just because I was more invested with the characters on that one. Yeah, definitely. And you can bring up a lot of uh, similar differences and parallels. There's is uh, the one character that could have felt just like he's being used as sort of, I don't know, a Hail Mary, like Tom Wilkinson's character and Michael Clayton, Russell Crowe's character and Insider were 
they're not in the exact same position, but they are very much are in similar positions of being caught up in the middle of all this. And then there's, I don't know, there's just, I notice a lot of lines with those movies. And maybe it's just because I'm finding myself liking this sort of legal thriller genre. I totally get that. I think it's more snappy. And even though there are times where you can get a little lost due to the amount of conversation that's happening, you never, you always understand what's going on. And that's what I appreciate this movie. It doesn't make me feel dumb. And it isn't trying to confuse me. It's just trying to be real. So I really, I really appreciate that. Definitely. So, yeah, I really like this movie, and I'm glad I got around to watching it. Yeah, me too, especially considering that I had, I don't want to say dreaded it for so long, but I guess wasn't in the mood, never seemed like something that would appeal to me, but... It was, it was certainly well done. Yeah. So, I guess, do we want to talk about, uh, like, all of its nominations at the Oscars and what it was nominated against? Oh, um, first, I ha- we have a few questions and then we can get into the Oscars section. All right. Uh, I would say one of the questions is related to the Oscars, Chauncey Peles, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, he asked about the director category. So we'll, we'll get into that when we answer director, but Owen asked, if not Russell Crowe, who do you think could have played this role? Um, oddly enough, the first person that came to mind was Dan Aykroyd, simply because he, looked, he looks a bit similar to how Russell Crowe looks in this movie. Um, and maybe that could have been an interesting against type cast thing for him. Yeah, that, that's a good decision. I do think Dan Aykroyd is a bit more stiff than Russell Crowe. It could have worked. I thought about Tom Wilkinson. Ironically, we just discussed Michael Clayton and his character and not relating to his, but I think that could have worked, especially after seeing In the Bedroom and seeing how much range and how amazing he is. And as, as I think Tom Wilkinson could have worked. Other than that, I do think Russell Crowe was very well cast, and I wouldn't have switched them out, but if I had to choose anyone else, I would agree. Yeah. And then, he also, um, Dylan, he, sorry, Owen also asked, Michael Mann, underrated actor, director, discuss, I mean, I can't really, I don't know if either of us can answer this, because we haven't seen any of other movies, but I think he's very good at yeah. directing actors. I think, as we said, all the performances in this are very strong. Yeah. And moving on to Dylan's questions, Dylan asked, "How do you think Russell Crowe?" I mean, this isn't really to us. How do, how do you think Russell Crowe ended up winning the Critics' Choice Award for Best Leading Actor three years in a row? He won for. Um, the Insider, Gladiator, and The Beautiful Mind. So, how do you think that happened? I'm oh, sorry, can you ask that again? 
Yeah, um, Dylan asked, how do you think Russell Crowe was able to win the Critics' Choice Award for Best Actor three years in a row? He won for this, Gladiator, and A Beautiful Life. Uh, I think it was Critics' Choice doing what they do now. They thought he was going, uh, they thought he was going to win in each of those three years. They got it right. It was Gladiator, but clearly they got it wrong with the, with the Insider and the Beautiful Mind. To be fair, with A Beautiful Mind, I think everyone thought he was going to win that year because he won everything. And But then there was Denzel being overdue and his own personal issues with, I don't know if it was the BAFTAs or him, him throwing a phone, but the uh, I guess 2001 was a perfect storm of Denzel's overdue for a lead actor prize narrative and um, uh, and Russell Crowe anti-Russell Crowe sentiment because he was the dick and then it was 1999 um, there was American Beauty I guess American Beauty was just strong enough to take uh, Kevin Spacey along for the ride he did win SAG um and this was Russell Crowe's first nomination. He was a bit more new, and his time would come, and surely enough it did. But yeah, I do think uh, Critics' Choice was doing what they do more frequently now, which is they thought they were predicting the Oscar winner. Yeah, uh, I see where you're coming from. I also have to add that in 1999, Russell Crowe won all of the Critics' Awards, all the Critics' Circles Award for The Insider. He won the New York one. He won the National Board. He won all of those. So it makes sense that the Critics' Choice Awards would award him. Kevin Spacey was a lock. He won the SAG and the Golden Globe. And obviously, American Beauty was the biggest Oscar player that year. But with Gladiator, that year was very confusing in the Best Actor race. And different people won everywhere. People didn't really know what was going on. So him winning along with Gladiator taking Best Picture makes sense. And the reason why I discussed this in my In the Bedroom episode, he didn't win for A Beautiful Mind was because his BAFTA speech was cut short and he got mad and there was a whole fight that happened and the drama from that was caused right when Oscar voting happened. And naturally, with Denzel being the runner-up and him having been nominated for Best Actor a couple of times, he, he won that way and he got this huge standing ovation. So his performance was very well liked and Training Day was... It was, it was, it was, it was a hit. It, it was a, it was a modest hit. Yeah. And also uh, got a nomination for Ethan Hawke in supporting actor, like finger close around supporting <laughs> because he is not supporting. Yeah, no, not at all. Dylan also asked, how does the film address the topic of what happens inside, inside people's heads, the insider? How do you think that was addressed? I think it was addressed well. Yeah, he's able to, as I said, showcase Wygan's emotional state very well and much more intimately than I'd expect. Yeah. And then, I mean, he hasn't seen the film, Dylan hasn't seen it, but he asked, in relation to other films, how would you say this deals with journalism? I don't know how much it deals with journalism as much as it deals with development and the whole workspace and the media, but I'm curious to know your answer to this. Uh, I'm not sure I would have the best answer to that, even though maybe I should, since I did recently take a journalism class in college. 
you know, maybe maybe this film doesn't just doesn't deal with that much. Yeah. Um, I do know that. I do think that it is pretty good at showing how easily journalism can be fabricated to become sensational. Yeah. I again, I don't really know much about journalism. But I'll trust your judgment. So do you want to um, get to the Oscar segment? Oh yeah. All right. Um, well, my my well, my first question is. Why do you think this film failed to win any Oscars, despite it getting seven nominations and having critical praise? What, what, why do you think they shut it out in terms of winning? Outside, uh, outside of the fact that there was tough competition. I guess it was just, had to be that one movie that uh, just missed. I mean, only two of the Best Picture nominees won anything, like uh, American Beauty and The Cider House Rules. So it's not like it was an outlier. This was one of those off years. Or it, it, honestly, it felt like only one film mattered that much. Like, I mean, I don't know what, what the public reaction to The Cider House Rules was at the time, but it doesn't, I don't get the sense that there was a lot of passion for it. Yeah, it made its budget back and, and, and then some. And it certainly had people's hearts, but it's and, um, very forgotten nowadays. Yeah. Uh, it probably didn't hurt that it had Miramax and Harvey Weinstein behind it. Yeah. And uh, which is unfortunate, but if they were going to push anything, they. I question why they weren't pushing the talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, yeah, um, it's just because a lot of nominations. Yeah, but I do question why would why they just dropped it for a picture and director, considering that the film's director Anthony Miguel had one best director and uh, for the English patient and the English patient won best picture. That was a huge hit for them, and. I was just like wondering why they would just not want to build off of that, but I can't say that they did a bad job with the Cider House Rules in terms of uh, its award success, but you know, certain decisions just look odd in hindsight, just 2020. Yeah, and also my 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 reasoning is that. The film had a budget, it says on Wikipedia, 68 to 90 million. I, I never know what that means, either of the two. Um, any, anywhere between 68 and 90. Yeah. I just wish it was a specific number, because that is kind of... The yes, point. I do too. Yeah, it's annoying, but it only made 60. So that is a... Yeah, well, it, that's a failure, and maybe not enough people saw it. Some critics said that, you know, the only people that like this film are people who are above the age of 35, and... This isn't a movie that teenagers like or people who are in college are enjoying. And even the adults who like it, they aren't necessarily recommending it. But it wasn't big enough in terms of its... It was a hit with the critics. The critics praised it. It was one of the best-reviewed films of maybe the whole decade. But 
it really wasn't a crowd pleaser and it wasn't an audience favorite. The two hour, 40 minute runtime and the dense story just, I guess, turned audiences off. Yeah. So do you want to get into I, I would agree with those points. Like, there's. I think this is a good example of, like, the disconnect between critics and, um, like, the general populace. Or. And a divide between entertainment and critical appraisal. Even though I was entertained by this movie, I could see how it could be overlooked by the general public just for being. Uh, just for say, coming off a bit too dry. Yeah. Do you want to agree? Do you want to move on to the categories themselves? Yeah, so... Yeah, the first is Best Sound. A Sound. Where it was nominated alongside The Green Mile, The Mummy, and The Phantom Menace. The winner was The Matrix. So, would you give it to The Insider or something else? Uh, I think the rightful one. It's been a long time since I've seen The Matrix, but uh, I don't think I can, in good faith, take it away from The Matrix. It's, I don't remember it terribly well. I also haven't seen it in a while. And I'm not a huge fan of it, but it's a technical marvel and certainly deserved that award. Yeah. And then Best Editing. The Matrix also won this. The Insider was nominated alongside American Beauty, The Cider House Rules, and The Sixth Sense. So would you give The Insider this award or not? Uh... Uh, maybe I'd give it film editing. I might have to rewatch The Matrix to see, because I know that editing plays a huge part in that movie, and I absolutely 100% get its win there. But I might consider it. But for now, I'll just leave it with I think The Matrix deserved this. Mm-hmm. I would actually give the, the Insider the win here. As we talked about, the editing really helps with the pacing, and I don't really remember enjoying the Matrix at all. I remember disliking it. I know it's a popular movie that is very respected and influential, but it's not for me. And I would say The Insider really impressed me with its editing and the way it, it deal, dealt with the pacing. I also love that The Sixth Sense was here. That is a very well-edited film and a great choice. Yeah, it is. And uh, just to um, just to mention the sixth sense, it should have been nominated for more than it was. It should have, like best actor Bruce Willis. I would have given him a nomination over mm-hmm. Sean Penn or Sweet and Lowdown. It should have been nominated for cinematography and original score. Where was James Newton Howard's nomination? But that's beside the point. Completely, I love that movie. Our next category is best. Screenplay based on material previously produced or published, or now known as best adapted screenplay. The Cider House Rules won, and The Insider was nominated alongside Election, The Green Mile, and Talented Mr. Ripley. So, would you give The Insider the win here, or would you have gone with something else? Uh, I think I'd give it the win here. Like the winner shouldn't have even the winner shouldn't even have been nominated for anything. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So pretty easily, I'd give it Insider. I'd give it to the Insider. Also, my runner-up would be the talented Mr. Ripley. I've seen every nominee in this category except for Election. I would actually give Election the win. Election is an amazing satirical dramedy, and it's hilarious and very dramatic. I love Election, but yeah, The Insider, The Talented Mr. Ripley, The Green Mile. This is a very good category, except, of course, the one film that won had to be the one that would not be deserving. The Insider, yeah. happy and great script. It would be my runner-up. And The Green Mile is emotionally very poignant, and The Talented Mr. Ripley is thrilling and very well connected in the storylines, but The Cider House Rules is just such a lame choice. It's certainly the most bland and uninspired of the nominees here, so I don't know. I guess campaigning really had to play a part in it because the rest of these scripts are phenomenal, and that one's not. Yeah. Choices. Yes. I know that it wasn't nominated in supporting actor or actress, but I don't know. I don't know what the wife's name is exactly, but I would have given her a nomination. And I also, yeah, I would have given her a nomination. Um, I'm not sure if I would have given her a nomination, but she was very good. And I definitely would have given Christopher Plummer a nomination over Michael Caine, the winner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, uh, I love Michael Caine. He's great in everything I've seen him in. Or at least, I haven't seen him in a lot of things, but I think he was great in um, in Educating Rita. And I think he was also great in Zulu. And, and yeah, this is just a lame choice. Mm-hmm. And he's currently my least favorite winner in this category ever. He's definitely in my bottom tier. Let me let me check my, my letter. Box. I haven't seen a lot of them, but... I've seen 58, and he's at 57. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, he is very low. So, not, it's definitely my least favorite category of the four acting ones. I just think it's the least interesting, but considering that the year before, or two years before, you have someone like Robin Williams winning for Goodwill Hunting, and then it's just. Such a boring choice. And I actually like him in Good Wolf Hunting. Oh no no, I'm Michael Caine. I, I love Robin Williams. Oh. Oh yeah, yeah. I would have given the award that year to Burt Reynolds, but I don't begrudge Robin Williams that win. Mm. Yeah. And then as for this year, I would give the win to Michael Clark Duncan, but again I would have really been happy with any of anyone besides Michael Caine. Yeah. I would have given it to Jude Law. Yes. That is a little bit talented, Mr. Ripley. Never, I've never heard that take, but I, I guess it makes sense considering your love for the talent. Um, Owen Daly, uh, uh, he did like a thread of who his winners would be for yeah. me tracking. And he also went with Jude Law for 1999. I really thought Tom Cruise was the most popular choice, but I don't know. Oh, oh he's, he's certainly very popular. And he yeah, gives a great performance. Amazing, amazing. But yeah. I, I don't know, Michael Clark Duncan just, he was so perfectly cast and that would have been such a good moment. Yeah. It just makes me sad that he's no longer with us. 
Yeah, me too. Very remembered character. Yeah. But moving on to a category that it actually was nominated for, Best Actor. Here's where I can get what in where I didn't realize was my hot take. So alongside Russell Crowe, you have Richard Farnsworth for The Straight Story, Sean Penn for Sweet and Low Down, Denzel for The Hurricane, and your winner, Kevin Spacey, in American Beauty. So would you give the win to Russell Crowe or would you give it to someone else? I would have given it to Richard Farnsworth for The Straight Story. I think what Richard Farnsworth does is playing such a simple role so truthfully. And uh, Kevin Spacey's performance left me at a distance. It was very technically accomplished, but there was something about it that just felt attached to me. And I guess I'll get more into my issues with the movie when we move on to Best Picture, but yeah, um, I would have given, I would not have given Kevin Spacey Best Actor. I think Richard Farnsworth should have won here. A lot of people dislike American Beauty, and I get that, and I get the whole issue with Kevin Spacey being in it, considering it kind of connects to what he's been accused of. And that- oh yeah, that aspect is not <laughs> very unfortunate. Yes. Like, but American Beauty is one of my favorites, and I think Kevin Spacey is absolutely spectacular. His line delivery is all-timer for me. Just any time he says something, it's either hilarious or exaggerated in a way that feels purposeful and intent- intended. And I really love the way that he creates his character. Do I prefer Annette Benning? Yes, because that is one of my favorites ever. And Oh yeah, she definitely should have won Best Actress. You know, that that's music to my ears whenever, when anyone says that. But yeah, I love Kevin Spacey in this movie. It is difficult to look at the performance and trying to separate the art from the artist. But I always do that to the best of my abilities. And I think he really earned the award. Then again, I haven't seen The Straight Story yet. And maybe that can change. But as of now, I, I don't know if that's going to happen because American Beauty is one of my favorites. And yeah, and I talked about, I, I do love Russell Crowe here. I was surprised by how good he was and how he was able to nail American accent and the emotional depth, but I'm sticking with Kevin Spacey as of now. I get it's kind of a controversial take, but you know what? I love the performance. That's very good. Yeah. Uh, moving on to Best Director, Sam Mendes won for American Beauty, and alongside nominees of Michael Mann were M. Night Shyamalan for The Sixth Sense, Lassie Hallstrom for The Cider House Rule, and Spike Jones for Being John Malkovich. Woo! I love that nomination. Yeah, such an inspired choice. I'm so mad that didn't get in. That is my second favorite film of the whole year, and it was so close. <laughs> yeah. Um, right, would you give it to or would you give it to someone else? I would have given it to M. Night Shyamalan for The Sixth Sense. I think the way he tells that story is just perfect. Yeah, I love that movie so much. I actually have Man at fourth in this lineup because it's such a strong group aside from Lassie Hellstrom. But yeah, I, again, I'd stick with Sam Mendes. I think the way he's able to compose the story and critique suburbia and explore all these 
different characters with such distinct relatability and utilize the arcs brilliantly and how many iconic shots are from that movie. I mean, I love it. But really any of the top four winning would be so deserved. I love the way Michael Mann conducts it. It's sort of an orchestra of all this chaos and distinct sharpness with its dialogue and characters. So I really like that. And yeah, I, I would have to agree. I, I love M. Night Shyamalan's direction of The Sixth Sense. Just, it's such a universally loved story for a reason. He conducts it with so much brilliance and thrill. Definitely. Um, yeah. I don't think Michael Mann was the runner-up. I, I, I just... That question, I just don't think that was the case. I think it was probably M. Knight or Lassie Hallstrom. Well, looking at all the precursors, uh, Lassie Hallstrom had nothing. Um, yeah. I I do think it was either Michael Mann or M. Knight Shyamalan. Mm-hmm. It was probably... I don't think it was. Yeah. Yeah, um, I look at the precursors, but I'm just basing that off of best picture where I think the Cider House was, which we can tie that into, I think. That oh, oh, sorry. Um, if we're talking I mean, about best I mean, picture. No, 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 I'm, I'm talking about director just because uh, Cider House Rules in this group won the second most awards. I think this was very easy for Sam Mendes to win, but otherwise the lineup it was, it was probably pretty, fairly close. Yeah. And best picture... Your winner is, of course, American Beauty. And alongside The Insider, you have The Cider House Rules, The Green Mile, and The Sixth Sense. So would you give The Insider the win or something else? I would have given it to The Sixth Sense. That would be my second. Again, I defend American Beauty. As I said, I get the hate for it, but I would go at one. My favorite is American Beauty. Second, The Sixth Sense. Three and four are tough, but three, The Insider. Four, The Green Mile. And five, by a very, very, very large margin, is The Cider House Rules. Yeah, um, I would rank The Sixth Sense first. In second place, I'd have The Insider. In third place, I have American Beauty. In fourth, I'd have The Green Mile. And in fifth, I'd have The Cider House Rules. I think um, the gap for both of us between four and five is... Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, but um, American Beauty, obvious winner. I'm sure nobody was surprised. It was, I suppose, the most popular of the group. It won four of the big five. Ironically, it didn't win the one that I think it would have deserved the most. But, you know, I mean, I, I can't complain. It won four big awards and cinematography. It won five big awards. So, yeah, I do wish The Insider won editing. Out of all the categories, that's the one I think it would have won, just because there are some tough competition, but I would not have been mad if it swept. Yeah. I definitely get the appeal of American Beauty. I just feel like it's kind of lost uh, some of the surprise element and the edge that it may have had in 1999. And it doesn't really feel as fresh as it may have before. Yeah, that's fair. And but 
Yeah, very, very strong lineup. I really, really wish being John Malkovich got nominated. That would be amazing. That's one of my favorites. It was so close. Also, Magnolia, which should have been should have been in bigger categories. Yeah, um, Philip Baker Hall is just spectacular. Julianne Moore not getting nominated is a crime. Yeah. So I do. 1999 is an amazing year for films, and I do think American Beauty is my favorite of the year. I know you're all rolling your eyes listening to this, but it's again, it, it's a strong year. I just wish the Cider House rules didn't do as well, but otherwise, I'm not complaining. Yeah. So do you have any final remarks? Uh, not really. I am glad that I was able to uh, discuss this movie with you. Me too. I'm glad you chose it outside of the obvious Best Picture nomination completion. But I did enjoy it a lot more than I expected. I think we had a good discussion about it. Where, what, what social media, where, where can they find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at GabeTheJoker with two underscores. You can find me on Letterboxd at Mr. Hulo. You can find me on Instagram at Gabe Bourne with a single underscore. And as for my podcast, um, it's the Alternate Oscars, where we rewrite the Oscar nominees of each year starting in 1928 and going forward. And then we announce our winners from those nominees. And I just released my most recent episode, uh, which is 1940, featuring Amy Thompson. So go check that one out. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Great. I am on Twitter at Sam the Parasite, Letterboxed, Sam Meltzer, no doubts or underscores, and please review and rate this podcast on whatever podcast service you use. Thank you, Gabe, for joining me. Thank you all for listening. See you around.